Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new, having premiered in theaters on June 16th, 2023. And one has been out for a little while, but I didn't get to review it because I took two weeks off a a little while ago. And this is actually probably the first weekend in a long time where I'm not sure what the first movie to review for you would be. But generally, I go for the movie that's likely to be the biggest box office hit and make the most money at the box office. But I'm not exactly sure what movie that will be, so I'll take the best guess. I'll go with the one that's probably guaranteed to be a hit, almost, and also the one that is the most family-friendly. So here we go. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Elemental. This is the latest from Disney Pixar, and it takes place in a world not populated by humans or anthropomorphic animals, but actually more by anthropomorphic elements, as in elements of Earth, not the periodic table of elements. So in this Earth, or in this sort of alternate universe, there are four types of creatures. There's those that are made out of fire, those that are made out of water, those that are made out of clouds, and those that are made out of earth. In other words, there are walking and talking trees in this world as well. And this story of Elemental follows the adventures of Ember, who is made out of fire, and Wade, who is is made out of water, in a city where fire, water, land, and air residents live together. And the elements of fire are the ones that are probably the most out of place in this world in the sense that they don't mean to be exactly a danger to other elements in the city, but they kind of are because pretty much they have sort of the reverse Midas effect in that everything they touch could, depending on their level of fireproof abilities, could actually light on fire. And that develops a bit of a tension between Ember, who is voiced by Leia Lewis, and a creature who's made entirely out of water. His name is Wade Ripple, and he's voiced by Marmadou Athi. And it's established that Ember and her family, consisting of Bernie, her father, who's voiced by Ronnie Del Carmen, and Cinder, her mother, who's voiced by Sheila Ami, are from a land called Fireland, where everybody is made out of fire. But not everything is made out of fire. Just some things are more flammable than others, so to speak. So they immigrants they immigrate to this elemental city and they develop their own community within Firetown. And I thought it was an interesting, although I would probably say a bit problematic, uh, cartoon look at immigration in a sort of uh, metaphorical sense in or in the United States and probably in some other developed countries as well. But I didn't think it was an entirely offensive one, but I, I could probably see some people having some problems with this analogy. But once the relationship gets started between Ember and Wade Ripple, who is, as I said, made out of water and literally leaks into her family store one time as a result of Ember's weakness, which is her temper, which it tends to set everything around her on fire. It's definitely her biggest weakness. There actually starts to develop a palpable relationship between the two of them. And as the movie was going on, I knew it was definitely taking some elements if you'll excuse the pun, of some other romantic comedies and romantic stories in general. There's certainly that story arc that's familiar to a lot of romantic stories, be them comedy or dramas. And I was going along with it, not thinking to myself, this is one of those cliched storylines. But as the movie progresses, I began to wonder, are these creatures actually going to get together considering that 
one of them could literally evaporate the other, so to speak. But I did think the tension between them, as well as the chemistry between them, was very cute. And I really found myself enjoying this film, both as a story and also as a good look at another sort of multiverse where people are, I, I guess... I guess you could say people because they are anthropomorphic are made out of a a certain kind of basic matter rather than just being regular human beings. But I liked how the story progressed. I thought Wade ripple, the way he was categorized was very funny. I laughed just about every time he broke into tears about something. And I, I loved the relationship that developed between Ember and Wade and this movie could probably serve as a minor comeback for Disney Pixar. Granted, they did have one great film that came out last year in Turning Red, but they did sort of have a bit of a a problem last year when they released Lightyear into theaters. I didn't think Lightyear was a bad film, but it definitely didn't live up to the storytelling or imaginative bar that was set by other Disney Pixar films uh, in general. But Elemental is an excellent film, certainly very enjoyable. It has its heart in the right place. I loved how it began. I especially loved how it ended, which is why I give Elemental my rating of a knockout. I thought there were a lot of very colorful characters. I thought that the main characters were not only very well voiced, but also very well developed. And I liked the dynamic that happened, especially when the other elements meet the families of their prospective loved ones. In fact, there are some other colorful characters voiced by the likes of Wendy McClendon Covey, Catherine O'Hara, and other talented voice actors who I don't believe have ever been in a Disney Pixar film before. As a matter of fact, I think this might be one of the first Disney Pixar films or one of the only Disney Pixar films that doesn't feature the voice acting talents of John Ratzenberger or Richard Kind. But I think once you get into the story, you don't really compare it to a lot of other Disney Pixar films. And I think that works very well for this film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a film that will probably give Elemental a run for its money on the weekend on which this podcast is being recorded. That movie is The Flash, and this is one of the many films in the DC Extended Universe, and sometimes when a movie from the DC Extended Universe comes out, I kind of think to myself, unless it's a Wonder Woman film, why don't you just give up? Because there are some DC Extended Universe films that have impressed me, but the ones that I think should have impressed me didn't impress me enough. And I'm talking mainly about the Justice League movie, which was where Ezra Miller, who plays The Flash, also known as Barry Allen, in this film, got his start playing The Flash. Now, I do also know that there was a show on the CW that was also called The Flash. Ezra Miller did not play The Flash and Barry Allen in that show, but that show has gotten a lot of really good reviews. But because of how little TV I watch these days, I haven't seen a single episode. I do remember actually seeing the show in the early 90s that was also called The Flash where John Wesley Shipp played the titular character. And I remember really liking that show back then, but I do remember my brother, who also used to watch the show with me, seeing it recently on DVD since they released the entire series on there. And he said, it's not the the show you remember. Eh, I, I guess that's nostalgia for you. But anyway... Ezra Miller here, who is in a little bit of a public relations pinch right now because of some shady things he has done, 
here plays, uh, I think, Barry Allen and The Flash very well. I try to separate the art from the artist in in such cases, and it's kind of hard with some other people like Kevin Spacey or R. Kelly, just to name a few, but I thought Ezra Miller here did a serviceable job. Interestingly enough, I remember Ezra Miller from way back in 2011 when he co-starred with Tilda Swinton in a very dark film called We Need to Talk About Kevin. And in that film, Ezra Miller not only plays the son of Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley, who are married, but he also plays a guy who, who uh, plays a high school student who shoots up his school. And it's, yeah, it's a very dark topic. It's something that is very timely and it is a fictional story, but it really is all too real. It's a fantastic movie, but Ezra Miller in that movie plays somebody very dark, somebody very unlikable. And here he plays a little bit more likable. And to Ezra Miller's credit, he plays somebody who is credibly likable. So in this movie, Barry Allen is living in Gotham City. He's best friends with Bruce Wayne, who's played by Ben Affleck, who's not only a friend to him, but also a mentor. And Ben Affleck is only in this movie for about five minutes, but it's five minutes too much because I think Ben Affleck is one of the worst actors to play Batman. Granted, like any other actor, he looks kind of cool in a Batman suit, but when he plays Bruce Wayne, Ben Affleck kind of half it. And Barry Allen learns through his super speed that not only can he go places really fast, which is kind of a given, but he can travel literally faster than the speed of light, which allows him metaphysically to travel back in time. Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne warns him about the ramifications of going back and changing the past. But honestly, this is where I had a problem with Ben Affleck's acting because he kind of just says you could, he just says very half-heartedly that he could bend a half a blade of grass and it could have long-term ramifications. But he doesn't sound, Ben Affleck doesn't sound urgent about it. He's not really, really advising Barry Allen against it. And I'm thinking, come on, man, put some effort into this. But fortunately, when Barry Allen goes back in time and saves his mother from being killed in just a very, very small kind of way by getting something that she forgot at the grocery store and putting it back in her cart, he does realize as he comes back to the present that he has gone into an alternate present where Batman doesn't really exist. Bruce Wayne does, but Batman doesn't. And in this movie, Bruce Wayne is played to the delight of many hardcore uh, comic book fans by Michael Keaton, who, as you may know, played him in the 1989 and 1992 films Batman and Batman Returns, respectively. So having Michael Keaton come back as Batman is fantastic. And the movie does take some other artistic liberties as well, but a lot of welcome ones. But in this world, um, Barry Allen realizes that not only is he the only superhero in this world, or at least the only superhero who's discovered his powers, but he also finds that he has an alternate future version of himself with whom he has to work together in order to save General Zod in this alternate universe where Superman doesn't exist from destroying the world. And while he can't find Superman in this alternate future, he does find Supergirl, who's played by an actress by the name of Sasha Callie. I think that's her last name. It's spelled C-A-L-L-E. Forgive me if I mispronounce that. But Michael Keaton is great coming back as Batman. Finally, he he doesn't exactly discover his superpowers because Batman doesn't have any superpowers, but he does have a lot of money to buy cool gadgets. But Supergirl is not aware of her powers either. So they all come together and they try to take down General Zod, who's reprised in this role back from the movie Man of Steel by Michael Shannon. And there are other great cameos and appearances in this film as well. As a matter of fact, there isn't just one, there isn't just two people who play Batman. 
or Bruce Wayne. There are actually three, and I'm not going to give away who the third person who makes a cameo in this film is because he makes an appearance at the very, very end of the film. But it is a very welcome cameo, especially considered to how half-ass Ben Affleck plays has played Bruce Wayne over the last couple of years. But I was very satisfied with this film in the DC Extended Universe. I think it's one of the best. I don't think it's better than Wonder Woman, which I think is unquestionably the best DCEU film to come out so far. But like Wonder Woman, it tells a really good story, and it actually looks like it's trying. There are also some incredible Easter eggs for fanboys of all types, including one climax where Barry Allen realizes that he does actually have the power to create certain multiverses as well, in addition to various other versions of other superheroes. So there are some people who make cameo appearances here by way of archive footage, and their appearances had the audience cheering. And I I think this film probably took the most advantage not only of things that would make fanboys cheer, but it also had the narrative focus to actually tell a really good story. I was kind of hoping for a Flash origin story here, but then again, while I hear some complaints about there being too many comic book movies out there, I hear even more complaints about there being too many origin stories. So while I was disappointed that we don't figure out how the Flash got his powers and how he used them at first, kind of like in the first Shazam movie. The second Shazam was a little bit of a disappointment. The first Shazam movie was excellent. I still was very impressed by The Flash, and I wasn't expecting to be impressed with it. And I give The Flash my rating of a knockout. Even though Ezra Miller does have a questionable personal life, allegedly, I think he was committed to this role and certainly had a lot of fun with it. Ben Affleck probably brought this film down a few notches, but not enough for me to give it a checkout. I think Ben Affleck himself is checking out of playing Bruce Wayne, which is fine because... The DC Extended Universe really does not need him. And if Ben Affleck is going to have this kind of attitude about playing such a prolific character, yeah, he can leave, for God's sake. Because the DC Extended Universe is just hurting with him. But I would still love to see, A, if he's willing to do this, Michael Keaton play Batman in another DCEU movie. I would also love to see Sasha Cali return as... Supergirl. These are actors, just a few among the many in this film who play prominent roles that actually look like they're committed to the role. They look like they're having a good time and they look like they would be eligible as well as welcome for a sequel. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Blackening. This is a film that premiered at last year's Toronto International Film Festival, and it is in theaters nationwide beginning on June 16th, 2023. It is from the director of Ride Along and Barbershop, i.e. Tim Story, and one of the co-writers of Girls Trip, wrote this film as well. And Tim's story has had a prolific career as a director. He certainly has directed a lot of commercially friendly films. One of the films that he has directed most recently, besides the first Barbershop and the two ride-along movies that have come out so far, has been the Tom and Jerry movie that came out two years ago. And that movie, I think undeservedly, made a lot of critics' worst of lists. I didn't think it was that bad. It certainly had its problems. One of them was Colin Jost because he just sucks. But I thought that the blend of live action and animation was actually really good. Probably not as good as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but probably up there with 
Space Jam and Looney Tunes back in action in how seamlessly the cartoon characters lived in a live action world. But here, Tim's story is getting back to directing films about with a predominantly black or African-American cast. So in this film, there are seven black friends who go away for the weekend in a cabin in the woods, which is usually the startup for many horror films, and they end up trapped in a cabin with a killer who has a vendetta. Will their street smarts and knowledge of horror movies help them stay alive? According to this tagline that I'm reading verbatim, probably not. And actually, well, that was more of the uh, synopsis or the elevator pitch of this film. The tagline of this film, which is actually on the poster in larger print than the title of the movie itself, is, and I quote, We Can't All Die First. And We Can't All Die First alludes to the horror movie trope where there are mostly white people in a movie and a couple or a handful of black characters. And it's usually the black character who dies first. And in a lot of horror films, whenever a black character either dies first or dies among the first, depending on the quality of the horror movie, that's usually where I check out. And that usually brings the quality of the film down a notch. But when all the characters in the horror film are black, that's a bit more of a fair game. And every single character in this movie, or at least the Uh, seven main characters has a story and because of time restraints, I can't tell you what each and every story of these characters are. I'll just tell you the name of the characters and the actor or actress who plays the character. So there's Lisa who's played by Antoinette Robertson. There's Dwayne who's played by Dwayne Perkins. There's Namdi who's played by Sinkia Walls. Allison who's played by Grace Byers. Shanika, who's played by X Mayo, King, who's played by Melvin Gregg, and Jermaine, excuse me, Clifton, who's played by Jermaine Fowler. And there are some parts of this movie that are scary, but there are some other parts of this movie that are screamingly funny. And when these seven friends, or at least there's six friends and one person who's not really a friend but knows somebody in the group and is tagging along. Once they go into this cabin in the woods, they find this demented board game that has this very offensive black caricature face in the middle, and they find that they are forced to play this game or die. And it's kind of like a Trivia Pursuits game that's A, more black-oriented, and B, probably from one of the circles of hell. And it's actually very funny sometimes what the questions are, and also it's even funnier what the answers are. And these seven characters are very smart, and they give very intelligent answers to some of these questions that are sometimes even the wrong answers. One of the questions that the board game, which which might seem to horror fans to be run by Jigsaw from the Saw movies, but... It, it actually isn't, but it's sort of a character that's very much like Jigsaw. But in any event, one of the one of the questions that the board game asks is name five black actors who are on Friends. And the group of Friends actually names five actors, five black actors who are on various episodes of Friends. And that's very impressive because I could only name two. But when they answer the question, the board game actually says... Wrong answer. The correct answer is, I never watch Friends. Living Single is my show. And (laughs) that was a very funny answer, but it also means that one of the people who's playing the board game has to die. And there's also one scene where they try to debate who is the most black or the least black. And there's one character who claims that he is the least black, And the reasons he gives are somewhat funny, although I'll just tell you the character is Clifton, who's played by Jermaine Fowler, who I think one of the weaknesses of the film is he plays the guy a little too nerdy, kind of like Steve Urkel. And there's one answer that he gives why he's the least black that is funny, but in the grand scheme of his character, it doesn't really seem to fit his persona. So he does say some funny things like, He thinks Jimmy Fallon is better without the roots. Who the hell thinks that of any color? And he also says, which results in him probably being cast out of the group, that he voted for Trump twice. 
And probably the biggest deterrent of him making this answer, which granted is funny, and the reactions of the other characters is also very funny, but there is a lot to really like about this film. I, I love how it plays around with other tropes besides the black person dies first. And I also thought there were probably more funny parts to this movie than there were scary parts. I think it was a little bit more in tone to Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness. I think Army of Darkness was a bit more farcical than this movie was. But I think the movie actually had, even though the funny parts outweighed the scary parts, it still had that kind of paradoxical balance that really worked. And some of the intense parts of this film also were genuinely very scary. I also thought that the movie did a very good job casting actors who were not very well-known. They could have cast other well-known young black actors like Tessa Thompson or Kiersey Clemens, but I actually liked that I could watch these characters, and even though they have acted in other things, it's not like they have no acting experience. I like the fact that I could watch them and care about them as characters rather than going through my list in my head of repertoires of other movies and TV shows in which they've acted. And none of them are very familiar, but I think that actually worked very well. And I'm glad that Hollywood finally got it in their head, or at least some of the producers took a chance with some of these youngish actors. I think all of them are in their thirties. And I also think that they were very good at the roles in which they played. And they were also very relatable as characters. So even though The Blackening was not a perfect film, I still give The Blackening my rating of a knockout because I loved this film for its original concept. I think that Tim Story did a great job directing a film that he hasn't directed in quite some time. I don't think Tim Story has ever directed a film that had horror elements. He's usually used to comedies, but his comedy chops worked very well in the story as well. And I also love the script, which was written by Tracy Oliver, who also co-wrote uh, Girls Trip with Kenya Jenkins, uh, Kenya Barris, excuse me, and Dwayne Perkins, who co-wrote this as well as co-starred in it. And Dwayne Perkins is a very talented comedy writer. He's written for TV shows for years and is currently, except that he's on strike, um, a writer as well as occasional on-air actor on the Amber Ruffin show and Amber Ruffin is comedy gold. I could go on and on about how I love Amber Ruffin and not only think she's funny, but also want to give her a big hug every time I see her on TV. But the point is that this film was written well, it was directed well, it was acted well, and the scary parts were legitimately scary, but not at the expense of how funny this film was as well. So I applaud The Blackening for being as original a film as it is, even though it's not perfect. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a movie that's been out for a little while, at least a month, but it's just now that I'm getting to this film. The film is called You Hurt My Feelings. This is the latest film that stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus in addition to Michaela Watkins, and both Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Michaela Watkins are alumni of Saturday Night Live. I just thought I'd put it out there, although they were on the show roughly uh, 30 years apart, but they play actually sisters in this film, and they play the sisters very well. But Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays a college professor who is also a novelist who's married to a psychiatrist by the name of Don, who's played by Tobias Menzies. 
And Sarah, Michaela Watkins' character, is Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character's sister, who's married to a struggling actor by the name of Mark, who's played by Arian Moyed. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character, Beth, is a published author who published a memoir about experiencing verbal abuse when she was a child. And her novel sell, sold relatively well, but not well enough to, for example, be on Oprah's book club, for example. And there is a running gag in this film that I actually found very funny where Beth, Julia Louis-Dreyfus' character, is trying to argue that verbal abuse is just as bad as physical abuse, which in a lot of ways it is, but physical abuse sells more books. It's not a very funny topic in real life, but I think in the context of this film, it, it is very funny and very poignant. So Beth is writing a new novel, which I believe is a mystery, and she's gone through several drafts of this novel and has had her husband, Don, Tobias Menzies' character, read some of the drafts and make some edits. And over the course of a year, Don has told Beth that her writing is very good. She just needs to tweak a few things. But there's one time when Sarah and Beth are out shopping and they see Don and Mark, their respective husbands, out shopping as well. And they go up to them to surprise them, but they overhear Don say that Beth's book isn't very good. And the reaction that Julia Louis-Dreyfus has to that news is somewhat funny, but also very realistic. She looks like she's about to have a heart attack, almost the equivalent reaction of if Don was having an extramarital affair and she saw him out with another woman. And I immediately identified with that kind of reaction because I've certainly had a time where I've seen the truth rather than having somebody say it to me. And I jump that stage of grief from denial up to anger or bargaining or one of those earlier stages of grief. And the result that happens is, of course, as of the title of this film, Beth's feelings are very hurt. And she's also trying to get Don to admit that he doesn't like the story. And from there, where do they go? So this movie is actually written and directed by not only a woman, but by the same person. Her name is Nicole Holofcener. I hope I pronounced that last name right. I always make uh, a risk whenever I do um, <laughs> pronounce those kinds of names. And she's had extensive uh, director experience in both movies and TV shows. Amongst the uh, TV shows that she's directed include The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Inside Amy Schumer, where she actually directed a segment with Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it, as well as Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Amy Schumer herself. And the title of the segment, I'm not going to say, but it is a, a very good segment. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't especially find Amy Schumer all that funny most of the time, but it's very good. When Amy Schumer's good, she's really good. But in any event, so Nicole has also directed one episode of Orange is the New Black. And you definitely see her niche for both directing comedy and drama, which this movie certainly balances very well. You feel for the characters, but you also laugh at their situations. And also Beth and Don have an adult living with them, uh, whose name is Elliot, who's played by Owen Teague. And Elliot is in that class of, I probably would say, gen uh, millennials rather than Gen Z. He's graduated from college, but he still lives at home with his parents. And he does have a job at a marijuana dispensary, which 10 years ago would have been a dead-end job. But nowadays, it's actually pretty lucrative, but it's still not good enough for Elliot, especially considering that he just broke up with his girlfriend. And Elliot is... In his 20s, he's very frustrated, but he also has a certain sense of entitlement that he realizes that he has. And the way he confronts his parents about the ways that they encouraged him when he was in grade school going up through college is good in a sense that his parents were there for him all his life, but at the same time, 
you sort of come to the conclusion, did Elliot really do a lot of these things himself? Did he deserve that? Were, were his parents smothering him? And honestly, the movie doesn't answer that for you. And I like the fact that the movie doesn't answer that for you. And I also love the fact that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is actually in a smart comedy Unlike earlier this year when she was in the Kenya Barris-directed You People, that movie is still resonating in my head as being one of the worst films of the year. It's definitely the worst film that I've seen so far, and the reason that film was so bad, without, getting, without me getting too much onto a tangent, is that because most of the people in the film, whether they were black or white, were incredibly stupid. And the most frustrating part of that is it's written by and directed by a guy who I know is very smart and has directed and written other smart things. So I'm very frustrated with you people. I'll save my grievances about you people for my end of year worst of list. But the important thing is that Julia Louis-Dreyfus has redeemed herself from the misstep that was you people in You Hurt My Feelings. I'm very relieved about that because Julia Louis-Dreyfus is very funny and she's very talented as especially a comedic actress, but she also has some dramatic chops as well that I think this movie showcases very well, which is why I give You Hurt My Feelings my rating of a knockout. I think it is a very well-balanced film. I think that Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Michaela Watkins not only act very well in it, but they're also very believable as sisters. And I also liked some of the uh, side uh, plots where Don, Tobias Menzies' character, is counseling other uh, married couples and also kind of balancing his own um, marriage com- complications as well. I just think it's all come together in a film that's very well balanced in terms of storytelling, but also feels very real. And there are some points where if it hadn't been for me recognizing Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Michaela Watkins, David Cross, and other actors I've seen many times before, I think this was a documentary. And that's certainly a testament to how good this movie was written and directed by just one person. That's very impressive. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are either coming out in theaters or, if I have time, coming out on streaming for the week of June 20th through June 23rd, 2023. And this is the week after Father's Day, so I hope that all of you out there are having a great time either celebrating the day with your parents, or if in the event your parents are not with you, I hope you are celebrating their name the way that they deserve to be celebrated. And I just have that hope for many of you out there. So, in any event... There's one movie that is subject to being released in theaters on June 20th, 2023, and the movie is called The Evil of Dracula. This movie is directed by Nikolai Malden and stars Ellen Wing, Miles John Dalton, and Nikolai Malden. It is probably a low-budget film, and it's there's a chance that it might be released on streaming. It could be released in a theater near you. I don't know. But in any event... This movie is about a professor who takes up a new post at an all-girls school only to discover the school's principal conceals, and it's principal P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, like a code of conduct, not the head of the school. But the principal, in that respect, conceals a dark secret and the pupils are in grave danger. And judging from the name of the movie, it probably has something to do with Count Dracula. (laughs) And there is um, a character in this film who's Count Dracula. He's played by Miles John Dalton. There's another character named Van Helsing who's played by Antonio Mayans. 
And I don't know if this film is coming out in a theater near me. I doubt that I'm going to see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. On June 21st, 2023, which is a Wednesday, there are two films that are subject to being released in theaters. The first one is a comedy called The Get Rich Quick Scheme. Guess what the people in that film are trying to do? Yeah, you guessed it. But in any event, this film is directed by, co-written by, and starring Samuel L. Pierce. Yeah, if it was uh, directed by, co-written by, and starring Samuel L. Jackson, it would probably be bumped to a Friday release. But in any event, this movie is about three students, probably college students, who make a bet with their evil principal, okay, maybe it's high school students, to succeed in business. Will they become entrepreneurs, or will they fail trying? Find out what is in store for you in Samuel Pierce's new film, The Get Rich Quick Scheme. And I'm not advocating that you see this film. I'm just letting you know that it's coming out. That last sentence was in the synopsis of this film, which also co-stars Tyler Griswold, Rex Nelson, and Haley Abella, amongst others. I don't know if this is a film that's coming out in the theater near me. If it is, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the other film that is subject to being released in theaters on June 21st, 2023, is a movie that's called... He Killed in Ecstasy. This is a film that is also directed by Nikolai Malden, who directed the film that I mentioned previously, The Evil of Dracula. So that's quite fascinating that he came out with two films at once. And actually, interestingly enough, the actor who's playing Count Dracula in The Evil of Dracula co-wrote this film. So I don't know if this film is coming out in a theater near me. I'm very interested. In, I'm more interested to see it now that um, the team behind one film is coming out with another one around the same time. But he killed in ecstasy. Does I guess people could kill in anger? They could kill in grief. In ecstasy, though, I don't know. That that seems questionable. But in any event, this movie is about a young doctor who kills himself. <laughs> We're off to a really bad start already after a medical committee terminates his research into human embryos, considering it too inhumane. Did this film just give away the ending of this film, or did it tell you what this doctor does in the afterlife? I don't exactly know. But a lot of the same actors who are in The Evil of Dracula are in this film, namely Ellen Wing, Miles John Dalton, and Antonio Mayans. So this looks like the two little films that could, so to speak. It could be either really good or really bad. I don't know. But if I see either of these films in a theater near me, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But it's more likely you'll see these films in a theater near you on June 23rd, 2023. The first movie that is already being released in limited release is the latest film from Wes Anderson. And this film is called Asteroid City. If I told you who was in Asteroid City, all the major actors, I would be here for a very long time. But there are a ton of actors in this film. Wes Anderson directed this film and co-wrote it along with Roman Coppola, and it is about the itinerary of a junior stargazer convention that is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. And I'm really tempted to read the entire roster of actors who are in this film, but there are some people who are kind of the usual suspects when it comes to Wes Anderson movies. They may not have been in every single other Wes Anderson film, but they've definitely been in some notable ones. Among them, Jason Schwartzman, who was in Wes Anderson's breakthrough film, not his first film, mind you, but his breakthrough film, Rushmore. And he's also been in other films like The Darjeeling Limited. The movie also co-stars Tilda Swinton, who has been in almost every other Wes Anderson film, Edward Norton, who's been in a couple of them, Adrian Brody, Lee Schreiber, and those are just the actors who have been in the most Wes Anderson films of the members of this roster. And interestingly enough, none of the Wilsons, Owen or Luke, Luke Wilson, or even their older brother Andrew Wilson, are in this film from what I could see from the cast list, but there are some other people who are in a Wes Anderson film, I believe for the very first time. One of the actors who I know is in a Wes Anderson film for the first time, I can say that with certainty is Tom Hanks, who is cast third in this film. Um, 
under Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson. And I don't think Scarlett Johansson has been in another Wes Anderson film, but I could be wrong about that. Also, some other first-timers for Wes Anderson movies include Brian Cranston, maybe Jeffrey Wright, but he's fourth billing in this, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow, Margot Robbie, and I'm going to stop right there because I could keep going on forever and ever, but this is a packed all-star cast. And this is a film that will come to a theater near you if it's not already at an art house film already. I know that some of the art house films, uh, art house theaters near me, like the Belcourt Theater, my favorite theater in Nashville, is also playing this film. I haven't seen it yet, but I will see it, and it is likely I will. Re- <laughs> I will review it for you, as well as choking my own saliva on next week's show. There's another film that's coming out in theaters nationwide on June 23rd, and that movie is called No Hard Feelings. And this is the first film in which Jennifer Lawrence has had the lead in quite some time. And Jennifer Lawrence has been in a couple of critically derailed films over the last five or ten years, but I think the fact that she's an Academy Award winner and also the fact that she's a household name means that she's not going anywhere anytime soon. But she definitely experienced a bit of a lull in her acting career. But maybe this will be her comeback film. I don't know. But it is about a woman by the name of Maddie, who's played by Jennifer Lawrence, who, on the brink of losing her home, finds an intriguing job listing. Helicopter parents looking for someone to bring their introverted 19-year-old son out of his shell before college. She has one summer to make him a man or die trying. That's the synopsis that I just read for you. Yeah, um, yeah. When you're 19, you're and you're introverted. Um, having Jennifer Lawrence bring you out of your shell is not a bad thing, at least according to me. But then again, I'm engaged, so it would be a bad thing for me. So I'm going to tread very carefully. But anyway, it's it's kind of telling though that this movie is directed by a man and co-written by two men. I think it would have been probably a bit better to have a woman co-write this screenplay as well because I think probably having a woman's perspective in this film would be key, especially probably sidestepping some maybe potential sex-negative developments that male writers tend to fall into when they're writing female characters. But I'm still going to give this movie a chance. The movie, of course, stars Jennifer Lawrence, as I said. It also co-stars Natalie Morales, the actress, not the reporter on NBC who's now on The Talk. It also co-stars Matthew Broderick, Laura Benanti, and some other people as well. And I believe that the 19-year-old in this film is played by Andrew Barth Feldman, who's not a particularly well-known actor, but he's a young guy co-starring along with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. So that's something that you probably wouldn't um, pass up regardless of your status in the acting field. But anyway, No Hard Feelings is coming to theaters nationwide on June 23rd, 2023. If I see it, I will let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that's getting a lot of critical buzz is a film that is likely to premiere in theaters nationwide. And this film is Past Lives. This is a drama romance that is actually uh, a foreign film that is already getting a lot of pre-Oscar season buzz. The movie co-stars, or rather stars, Greta Lee, Tao Yu, John Magaro, and Moon Seung Ah. And Past Lives is a film that is not only a romantic drama, but it also deals with the idea of changing the past, which is something that, interestingly enough, The Flash also dealt with on a kind of science fiction Ray Bradbury level as well. I think Past Lives is probably taking more of the thematically Nicholas Sparks approach rather than the Steven Spielberg or any other kind of science fiction approach. But I'm very interested to see this film. This is definitely one that I would see with my fiance uh, on a date night. And if I see this film by next week, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final movie that is subject to being released in theaters and is 
definitely going to be released on Netflix is a movie that's called God is a Bullet. And this movie has an all-star roster of, um, of talent here. And they include Jamie Foxx, who I know has been in the hospital for some time. For what he's been in the hospital to get treated, I don't know. But I hear he's been released from the hospital and that he is doing very well, which is great. Because if he died tragically, that would be... Well, if he died, that would be a tragedy. And the movie also co-stars Ethan Suple, Maika Monroe, and Nicola Coster-Waldo, amongst other people. God is a Bullet is a movie that I know is probably going to be released on Netflix as well as being released into theaters. And it's uh, certainly a film that I will see. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And I'm very sorry that I can't tell you the synopsis of the plot, but rest assured, it's because of my internet difficulties right now. The internet is acting very slow right now, and there's really nothing I can do about it. But I will tell you before I leave, the films that are going to be released on streaming for the week for the week of Friday, June nineteenth, excuse me, Monday, June nineteenth through Friday, June twenty third. And there are a bunch of movies that are going to be released on Netflix, a ton of Netflix originals, which I might not exactly have time to go over entirely. But on Monday, June nineteenth, there is a documentary that's coming out called Take Care of Maya. I'd be very interested to see that. On that same day, Monday, June 19th, My Little Pony, the movie, will be appearing on Netflix, but it's not a Netflix original. That was a film that was released in theaters a couple of years ago. There's also, on Friday, June 23rd, there is a movie that's coming out called I Number, Number Josie Gold. Another film that's coming out is called King of Clones, which I'm probably mistaken. I think that's the Jamie Foxx movie that will... Oh, I'm sorry. That's a documentary, but... It's about cloning, apparently, either that or it's a metaphor, but I don't know exactly. Another film is called Make Me Believe. That's a Netflix original. The fourth movie is called The Perfect Find, which is also a Netflix original. And the fifth film is Through My Window Across the Sea. I'm definitely not going to watch all those Netflix films, but if I get the chance, I will see some of them and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.